0: Well, good morning. We look to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. I wanted to read the uh, the verses for you, and then we'll look at what it means. Romans chapter 38, verse 31. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible uh, translation. Uh, Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who will bring a charge against? I'm sorry. Who is the one who condemns? Uh, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angel nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. As we look to our text this morning, we, uh, we are looking at the Christian as a conqueror. And so I've entitled this sermon, The Conquering Christian, The Conquering Christian. And so far to this point, as we have looked at all the chapters uh, from Romans chapter one all the way to Romans chapter seven and through where we are in Romans chapter eight, we've learned a lot. We've learned much concerning the Christian life. We've learned that it is indeed a life filled with sorrow at times, a life filled with trials and tribulations, a life that is full of us waging war we're at at war spiritual warfare Uh, both inside of us and outside of us because there's a war against error there's a war against the spirit of the age there's a war against the kingdom of our adversary satan but it also what we learned is that this is also a life filled with certainty and hope Uh, so thus far just kind of encapsulating or recapping (coughs) What we've learned, it is a life filled with certainty and hope. It is a life whereby we long to be with Christ, that we want to be with him. And I would argue that that is the feature of the Christian's life. That is what the Christian is hoping for. And that's what the Christian is waiting in eager expectation for. Uh, it is that we are ultimately redeemed when he returns. But even more, it's not simply that the Christian is living a life, a defensive life, a life whereby they're catching uh quote, unquote, hell from the world system, catching hell from our adversary. And then we're simply reacting according to that. That's not the Christian life. In fact, Romans chapter eight spells out much more than that, because it's not only a life of warfare around us, outside of us and within us, but it is a life of conquest. It's a life of conquest. And I get that from Romans chapter eight, verse 37. Let me read it briefly for you, just that verse. But in all these things. As Paul begins to wrap up the summation of the Christian life, he says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. Paul fills in in this particular text the how and why it is that we achieve ultimate victory. He tells us how and why. But Paul also reveals what arena serves as our theater of conquest. So he tells us how and why. And then he tells us, where do we conquer? On what basis is that conquest played out? So we get right into it as we look to Romans chapter eight, verse 31, when he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? To understand the foundation or the terms of conquest, we have to look backwards into the text before we look forward into the verses that follow. Because it is on that basis that our walking in the will of God, verse 27, and then in God's power, his sovereign power, and how through his election of us for our salvation, being predestined as his own, being justified, the one-time act whereby God declares the sinner not guilty, based on the cross work of Christ, and then to us being glorified, that is, made finally into his image given our eternal bodies and receiving our joint heirship and our inheritance in him. And then all of this assumes our sanctification. You don't see the word sanctification in there, but it assumes it because it assumes justification. And then it assumes glorification, being with him, being made right by him, being declared righteous by him, by the merits of Christ, by the work of Christ. And then the end of our lives being brought to him, assumes sanctification. That is the ongoing work of cleansing of sin in our lives after positionally we have been placed in the reality of righteousness and being declared uh, cleansed. So it is from this standpoint, you see all the doctrine that feeds our conquest. Eliminate the doctrine, you eliminate being able to exhort and encourage Christians on how they conquer and why their lives are full of conquest. And then you know what you have to do, you have to introduce pragmatism. You have to tell them that they're always weak, that they're always quote unquote struggling. And then you have to introduce revenue-based programs to get them to see that they can be victorious eventually, but it's through your mode and your model. I'm not here to tell you that today, because if I tell you that, then there's no encouragement. You simply are being made into my likeness, my image, and you're being fed something that makes you think you're being victorious when really you're just going from one struggle, one sin uh, to the next. But that's not what Paul says. Paul tells you that you can conquer now. And he tells you not like the prosperity gospel uh, preachers, the false teachers in that movement are teaching you that you conquer because you're able to generate revenue for yourself. No, you conquer because you have an eternal power working in you and through you to wage war and to win war. That's why you conquer. And this is where Paul goes. It is from this standpoint that we have the answer. There's several questions that Paul asked, but it is from this standpoint that I mentioned in the verses between 27 and 30 as to why you win and how you win. Paul is going to answer for us the question he asked in verse 31. And there's a couple other ones that he'll ask that he'll also answer. But he first says, what then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who is against us? This is, again, not simply a statement. It's a question. He's asking a question that he intends to answer. It's not simply a rhetorical question. Where he asked the question, we're supposed to, through introspection, looking within, close our Bibles and maybe think about all the ways in which we can answer the question. That's not what Paul is concerned with. He's answering a question as he's asking the question, but he is asking a question. And he raises it so that he can provide the answer. It is instead that he first provides the context in the verses that precede this one. He provides the context or reason for asking the question that he does here in verse 31, because he alludes to the things to which he refers in the question. What then shall we say to these things? But now from verse 32, he goes to answer the question entirely. As you look beyond verse 31, you see, Wow, he's not only raised the foundation for which he asked the question, but he also, as he moves forward through the text, begins to address the answer to the question, tying it to the foundation and the reason for which the question is asked. But now from verse 32, we look, what then shall we say to these things? Well, I'll tell you, largely the reason for which he raises the question and he answers it is all doctrinal. It's all doctrine, and it works out itself through the life. So I pose a question to you as we talk about the Christian as a conqueror. Shall we say nothing at all about the doctrines of justification? Shall we say nothing at all about the doctrine of sanctification, of glorification? Shall we say nothing at all about divine election, predestination, Christology? That is the study of Christ, his person and his works. And all the other doctrines, because when Paul says that the Christian can conquer, he brings up those doctrines and he says that those doctrines are the foundation upon which you not only wage your war, but you win the war. And so we can't sit here and academically stick our noses in the air and say, well, we, you know, we we can't agree on this particular facet. We don't want to be divided over these issues. And then we can't just live a life of feeling where we never deal with the doctrine. It always comes down to the teaching. Paul essentially says, if you want to understand how to win the war, you have to understand these doctrines and you have to live as though these doctrines are true. And you have to be not only acquainted with the doctrines, but you have to study and invest yourself in what the doctrines teach so that you can live out what they say. But that also assumes that you, the Christian, can do it. That you can do it. That divine election is not too hard to understand. It may be hard to swallow for some. That glorification is not too difficult to understand for the Christian. Predestination as well. But I'll tell you also. It is the reason for which there's so many things that are waged against these doctrines. It's to keep you from understanding that you conquer according to them. So Paul... He doesn't assume that these things are too difficult. So, for the Christian, for the person who is coming to terms with Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39 and the whole context, shall we deem these things too difficult for the so called layperson and only meant for the academy? Shall we say that these things are too difficult to understand, too difficult to discuss? Let's replace the doctrines of election. Let's replace the doctrines of glorification with something else. Let's let's infuse the writings of men somehow to bring you to the idea that you conquer. Well, when we begin to do that, we assault Paul and his doctrine first. But we also assault the means for which Christians continually win the war. But clearly the answer is no. The answer is no, that these things are not too difficult for you to understand and they're not too difficult for you to live according to if you indeed are indwelled by the power of the spirit. Because it's not only that, whatever difficulty and challenges you're met with, you're at war, but you can win that war. You can win that war. Paul not only asked a follow-up question to serve the question he asked in verse 31, but he goes on to explain the answers to each question In verses 32 to 39. First, as you look to the question that he asked in verse 31, I'll read it again. What then shall we say to these things? The things above the text. If God is for us, who is against us? Well, look at what he goes to first when he answers that question. First, he goes directly to what Christ has accomplished on the cross. That's the first thing he goes to to answer the question. What has Christ accomplished? You remember when we started Romans, I said Romans is largely mostly about what God has done. And then from there, what we should do because of what God has done It really is about God. But he goes to what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And then he talks about the father's divine plan of redemption being executed to perfection. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He goes on to the divine pleasure that God the Father always has in the Son and how the act of substitutionary atonement, that is Christ standing in the place of his elect on the cross, bearing for himself the wrath of God for others so that they might be made righteous. Or they will be made righteous. But Christ also in this offering himself willingly for the elect. Paul makes that not only something that would be theoretical. What he deals with is that this is done for our benefit. This is one of the ways in which we win. That the son is delivered over for us all. And the divine eternal blessing is such an act that it freely grants us all things in him. It gives us all things in him. But verse 32 is also not hypothetical in its reach. In fact, it is very much exclusive. Paul is referring to us, quote unquote, us in verse 32. He says it there, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Us being the Roman Christians first, because we look at the context In this historical background, we understand when he says us, he's talking to a particular people to whom he's writing with a reach beyond those individuals. But that reach is one in which we have to identify who is he referring to? Us being the Roman Christians first, historically speaking, and then us, the New Testament church. So us being them first and then us, the New Testament church who succeeds the Roman Christians in time. Then he specifically refers to the all, us all in verse 32, joined to the us in verse 32, and then he identifies who those persons are. Where does he identify them? He identifies them in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That is the us all. Who will bring the charge against God's elect? elect so the reach is very specific as he deals with the theater of spiritual warfare he goes on to deal with it in the realm of persecution and accusations against us as those occur in time and are waged in heavenly places he's concerned primarily with the elect with the elect and so he says Who will bring a charge? Well, these charges are brought not only here upon the earth. The charges are made manifest here upon the earth. But we know, you and I know, because we've been dealing with spiritual warfare, not only in this text, but in other places that Paul wrote concerning Ephesians. Even in our Bible study time, the things that Daniel is prophesying about as we study the book of Daniel, things that are taking place in the heavenly places, both present and future, that will impact the end times. For the Christian, but we know that this locale, this area of the heavenly places are in view because of what he says in the previous chapter, in the previous chapters specifically, right here in Romans related to the Christian walk, because he's talking about the Christian's warfare, what the believer faces when in Christ. And yet, if that's not enough for you to say, well, are you sure that this is what he has in mind? Well, if you look at if you look at verse 34, he uh, or who is the one who condemns Christ? Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Now, look at this. This is this helps us understand the locale, the location. Of where these things are taking place, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. If he's interceding in the heavenly places, therefore, the accusations of war is being equally raised against us in the same place and made manifest here. Well, then, if the blessings and our conquest are taking place in the heavenly places, then they, too, will be manifested here. We know he's talking about the heavenly places. He, de- he deals with Jesus's intercession for us through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Holy Spirit's intercession on our behalf. As we looked at the last time we were together in Romans related to the Holy Spirit's work as one who groans on our behalf. But then Paul immediately identifies God as the one who ultimately justifies the sinner. God is the one who ultimately justifies the sinner. Now, listen to this. Therefore, God is the one who ultimately eliminates any accusation that men will make against a Christian to bring eternal charges against a Christian. Let me repeat that for you. Paul identifies God as the one who ultimately justifies the sinner. So man does not justify you. Therefore, you do not look to man to vindicate you. But listen to this. God ultimately eliminates any what would be deemed, quote unquote, successful accusation made against the Christian. And every accusation made against a Christian is not simply some harmless or flippant word that's spoken. It's meant to bring an accusation about you before God, because such people are speaking the language of their father, Satan. Who wants to bring eternal charges against you before God. So any accusation made in that arena. God eliminates it. He eliminates it. He won't hear it. You know who he hears? He hears Jesus pleading on your behalf. He doesn't hear what men are saying. He will will not allow it into the court as substantial evidence against you. If you're in Christ. So then we know we are dealing solely with spiritual matters. We're dealing with very spiritual matters here. We, are, we know we're dealing with these matters as it deals with God's elect, as it works itself out in temporal matters, meaning in time, in the time in which we live here. Because we are opposed by our flesh, which we examined in Romans 7, and we are opposed by the world system. Both corporate, both corporately and individually. As individuals, we deal with the world system. Corporately, the world system lines up against the Christians. As well as Satan, who accuses the brethren before the throne day and night, according to Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. But in all this, in all these things because we talked about before well what is our plight how do we persevere how do we continue well in all this what Paul is saying is these attacks against us are not successful charges against us in the high court of heaven and that is the only court that matters it's the only court that matters to the degree the charges against us being from the adversary Working his attacks through the mouths and minds of his men, through the mouths and the minds of his men. These are Satan's men that wage these attacks or the world system mounting its assault against the Christian. We are not disheartened because of what God has done, as Paul says, in not sparing his only son for us on Calvary's cross. Yes, it is fitting for us to think about the cross work of Christ as something eternally blessed, eternally positive and what it adds to us as a Christian. But I want to help you think about what it eliminates for you as a Christian. It eliminates every successful, otherwise successful accusation that will be made against you in the future that was already made against you as you have been established in Christ in the present and even in the past that may carry itself forward, although you may hear it, although it may wear you down, although it may dishearten you in the court of heaven, it's not even heard as a valid charge. Because of what Christ has accomplished, it is why he asked the question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? The evidence is not even welcomed because of Jesus's intercession. Well, certainly the Roman believers, the Christians, our brothers and sisters of that age, they had to hear this because it wasn't only Rome who was bringing the charges. It was the Roman Caesars. It was the Jews. And it seemed like everything was stacked against them. And I'll tell you, you live in a time in a society that very much pays deference and homage to the Greco-Roman way of life. So you need to hear the same encouragement. Because those same charges that were waged in yesteryear and the ages past are waged against you. Perhaps they're more subtle. Perhaps the adversary is not openly feeding people of this age to the lion's mouths. But you are certainly enduring a very uh, mounted, a very uh, premeditated attack against you and against your faith. But listen, I want to go further with you here. Because look at verse 34, it says, who is the one who condemns? Not only who will bring a charge against God's elect, then he answers and said, well, God's the one who justifies. So what's the charge? If God has justified you, then what successful charge can any other man bring? He's already acquitted you on the basis of what Christ has accomplished. But further, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. This speaks of propitiation. That is, Christ in his perfection, bearing our sins upon him and satisfying God's wrath meant for us. Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus is. he goes to his death? Yes, rather, who was raised? Well, remember when the Bible says he was raised for our what? Our justification. He's raised for our justification. We needed him to be risen. Because that's that's the gavel banging and saying, not guilty. You're not guilty. Christ is sinless, perfect, spotless lamb. The work is finished. Total estai. It's finished. It's finished. That finished work having ongoing benefits. Who is at the right hand of God? Now we have one who is ascended to sovereign power. Oh, he always was and always is, even as he walked upon the earth, yet only emptying himself of divine privileges, not of divinity. But yet he realizes and is now at the right hand of God. And he's not simply seated there, but he's seated there making intercession for us. He's eternal. Therefore, his intercession for us is ongoing. Until such time when we're brought together with him, we do not need him to intercede for us no more. Because now we're glorified. We're brought into the presence. We receive our heirship. Raised for our intercession. Raised for our justification and brought to God for our intercession. Think about that. Think about that. Can't be brought. These successful charges can't be brought because it's God who justifies the ungodly, not men. It is then only Christ who can condemn among those who do not have faith in his name, according to his crossword. So Paul's questions in verses 33 and 34 are answered by what God himself has accomplished. Men are not gods. Men cannot condemn you and they can't save you. God can. And God alone. He does not go by when he answers this question. He doesn't go by what we see and even how we feel. Or how we feel by what we see. He goes by what us Christians call faith. It is a firm conviction and in what Christ has accomplished. Specifically, he goes by faith in Christ's finished work. And since Christ has finished his saving work on behalf of the elect, as stated in verse 33, he lives. The Bible says this. He lives forevermore to make intercession for us, according to Hebrews, chapter seven, verse 25, and our very own text in verse 34 here in Romans, chapter eight. It is then and only then that we are victorious in Christ. But how? Well, in verse 35, we are raised up with him. And he lives eternally and is seated at the place of supreme authority with God the Father at the right hand of God. And yet in all this, you're starting to get something of the impossibility of successful assaults against you and your walk. It's impossible for this to be. I mean, this is something certainly praiseworthy. it's impossible for, for success in this area to be successfully separated from Christ. Yet he intercedes for us. And therefore, it's impossible for our foes to prove eternally victorious over us. Even when they have the one they serve, Satan, who is their king, they have him going before the throne to make these accusations. And then you have the world system. Well, the world system is just you don't understand the world system. It's formidable. It's hard. It's rough. I mean, everyone's stacked against us. Well, listen to this. Well, Christ is going to destroy the world system at his coming. So if you see, you're not only pressed on all sides. What Paul was teaching is you are victorious on all sides. That you can't lose. Think about it that way. If you look at this, he says, verse 35, he puts it in the form of a question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes to a few of the areas where people would typically come up with ways that you and I would be separated from some human power. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But then he doesn't end there. We read verse 37. He essentially says we are indeed conquerors, even in the face of all those things. And yet, if there were an opportunity for anyone or anything to sever us from God when we are truly his, then we certainly would have caused the fear like the world fears. We would have caused the fear. If God were not all powerful, if God couldn't sustain us, we should be fearful. But we do not fear. Paul frames this point in another question, as I said, in Rome, in Romans chapter eight, verse 35. And I want to focus on that. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, if we were talking about anyone but Christ, anything but the love of Christ toward us and in him, And in his love, then all the things that Paul says would be able to separate us. So if we were talking about anything but the love of Christ, all those things can separate you from the love of Christ. Do you love money? Well, all these things can separate you from money. Do you love men and their affirmation and and their worship and their acclaim and their honor? Then all these things could separate you and sever you from that. Do you love the world system and the world's goods and what it brings to you? Then all these things can separate you from that. Do you love your religious idols? Well, then all these things can separate you from those things. But when we're talking about the love of Christ, only and only in that and exclusively in that can you prove victorious over all these things. Think about it this way. All the things he says next can separate people from their idols both as a cause and in some cases as an effect, and in some cases as both cause and effect. But not for the Christian, not for the Christian. Paul then in verse 35 names the things that one might think could separate us. He said it there, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, danger, But sure, all those things may happen to the Christian. Paul never said these things won't happen to you as a Christian. This is where we dare not twist the text as the prosperity gospel twists it to their shame and to their eternal destruction. All these things may happen to the Christian, but that is not what we are concerned with. Paul is not concerned with telling the Roman Christians that these things may not happen to them. Just as I'm not concerned with telling you or telling myself that these things may not happen to me. We are not concerned that they may happen. We are not concerned with people that may mock us when they happen to us. Because if we were concerned with this, it would be a fleshly way to look at this. We'd be looking at these things if we were trying to eliminate them altogether. We'd be looking at them in a fleshly and sinful way. If we were concerned with, hey, you know what? We don't want any of these things to happen to us. So how do we build a system around ourselves to eliminate persecution, famine, sword, nakedness, peril, distress? But Paul doesn't say eliminate. And he doesn't say, well, these won't happen to you when you become a Christian. Instead, the question is this. This is his question. This is the question you ask yourself, and we all ask ourselves. I'm not above these things. Can those things eternally separate us from the love of Christ? That's the question. Only Christianity can answer no. They can't. And can, and listen to this even more, let's heighten this. Not only separation, can any of those things, if we're truly God's elect and in him, My brothers and sisters, can they bear evidence against us before God as a valid charge against us? So can they successfully be used in the high court of heaven as valid charges against us? And can they separate us from God? That's what we ask, not are they happening to us? If they're happening to us, that doesn't mean we're separated from God. It only means if you're in Christ and those things are happening, that now you await the eternal hope of his glory that will that will, in this case, vindicate you, <coughs> especially consider in verse 36. You have a promise. And thankfully, the promise is sandwiched between all the things you need to prove victorious. But there's a promise that's almost explicitly stated here. It is promised to the Christian. Just as it was promised uh, to the old testament saints in that generation for your sake we are being put to death all day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered i believe when jesus as the perfect and holy one is speaking of us being assaulted by the world when jesus says that in this world you will have trouble but he also says i have overcome the world well when he goes to the trouble we shall have he's speaking very consistently As the one in whom the prophets look forward to and in the one in whom the prophets worshiped and awaited. He's speaking very plainly about the trouble that will befall the Christian to one degree or another. But it is promised to one degree or another that our lives will be met with some of the things that are listed here or all of them. One of them, maybe two of them, or maybe all of them combined. Some of them at times in our lives and some at other times. But in them, we don't live a Christianity whereby we brace ourselves. We also don't live according to the New Age precepts of prosperity gospel, quote unquote gospel, which is a heretical way to proclaim things. We don't live in a way where we bring up some confessions that will help us get through some mantras. Some self-esteem mantras. But we also don't brace ourselves. We don't simply brace ourselves. We don't wince. We don't ready ourselves for impact. That's not living the Christian life. We march forward. We march forward. Paul says in verse 37, in all these things, in each of them, in each of them, we overwhelmingly conquer. So as we're met with them, as they come to us, I'm not saying you're not worn down at times. I'm not saying these things don't hit you hard and these things don't take your vitality and your energy at times. And I'm not saying that they're easy to deal with. But what I'm saying is you know they're there and you know they're coming. And you know what your response ought to be and you know how it is. I've said it more often now than before. Christianity, the biblical worldview, the way in which we view the world according to Christ and the Bible, is the only thing that can look forward forward and determine our own course according to the word of God. We don't determine our course by making up our course, by creating a path for ourselves, but we know where we're going. We know where we're headed, no matter what assails us on all sides. We know where we're marching. The course is thus determined for us. We're simply being aligned to the will of God as we walk through this life. We're not charting territory unknown for ourselves. We're not creating for ourselves. We're able to look ahead and with accuracy, according to the word of God, determine this is how it ends. Thus, this is how I should live. That is the course that we take, according to the new covenant. But Paul says this. He says, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. And not just overwhelmingly conquer, but through him who loved us. Through him. So now the stakes are higher. It's through him that we conquer. In all these things. In each of them. Because when he says all. He's talking about the parts and the whole. In each of them we conquer. But in all. In the one who loved us. Listen. We are assured victory. Over all these things. Even in these things. On the account of his eternal love. For us. That's why. That's how. But further, he does not only go to the things that occur as a result of the world system. That's not only what Paul says, he not only says you're going to overwhelmingly conquer based on what you can see. But in verse 38, what many of the things he'll mention here has in common is that they're dealing with uh, they're dealing with the spiritual things. By that, I mean spiritual forces. Spiritual forces, unseen spiritual forces also stacked against us. It's not just what you can see that's stacked against you. It's the unseen spiritual forces that are driving the things that you can see. Somewhat behind the scenes to us at times. Even when they mount their charge against us to bring destruction. Look at what he says in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death... That's a big one because we're all going to die someday, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities. And now he goes to time and how these unseen spiritual forces impact time. Look at this. Things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Then look at verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul deals with even these things as a whole, as individual parts. And I believe that what is said here in verses uh, 38 and 39 are very much, very much connected to the questions that are asked in the early part of our text this morning, but also... It's tied to verse 35 because he immediately ties it with verses 35 and 39. He's showing you both seen forces and unseen spiritual forces that are certainly and openly hostile toward you in Christ. The question isn't, are those things occurring? Are those things hurting me and are those things causing destruction? That's not the question. And many people in this hour are simply stopping at that question. The answer you should be asked or the question you should be asking and the answer you should be providing is uh, for this. The question, can it separate me from the love of Christ? And can any of those things, seen or unseen, bring successful charges before God in the high court of heaven? That's the question. He deals with these things As a whole and yet as individual parts, but also as they work together in opposition in the present age and age to come. So Paul's not only dealing with the Romans, he's dealing with us. And if the Lord tarries, he's dealing with the generation that will come after us. And subsequent generations, if the Lord returns, then we have our whole portion and our whole victory is realized. But listen, he doesn't only bind these things to a particular era. Well, then, for the Christian, he does not bind the conquest to a particular era. He doesn't only say, well, let's go ahead and continually do seminars on the Reformation. Let's consistently do seminars on some past age where Christians were victorious, uh, but not so much now. Paul is saying, no, no, no. This goes to the present era to which he's writing, but also in the age to come. It was certainly good enough to consider these things for the Christians of old, and it is certainly good enough to consider these things now. And by good, I'm understating it. They are eternally good for us to consider and for us to deal with. It is an eternal conquest. That was given to you at the cross. You have an eternal conquest, just like you have an eternal inheritance. So then the Christian is then an eternal conqueror, but not in and of yourself. Because of the eternal and holy one who sacrificed on your behalf. Paul is concerned with the magnitude, the reach in verses 38 and 39. Specifically, 39, the reach of the spiritual uh, entities that he identifies. And then if that's not enough. I like what Paul does in verse 39, because he then deals with anything possible that you could think of that he may have left out. Look at verse 39, nor height, nor depth. You want to go to the heights before you reach heaven. Consider the heights. You want to go low before you reach the depths, consider the depths. And then he says, well, if you're saying, well, maybe there, I mean, there's you just you don't understand the things I'm going through. Look what he says, nor any other created thing. If you're thinking of it, it can't separate you from the love of Christ and it can't bring successful charges in God's high court of heaven. Jesus settled it all. He settled every ounce of it. Everything that you could possibly think of that this world is presently throwing at you, that your flesh is throwing at you, it will have no success, no hearing in the high court of heaven. Case dismissed. You have been acquitted by the blood of Christ. It is his way of saying nothing at all. And then he says, essentially, let me show you what I mean in part by nothing at all, but also let me cover the whole for you. So you can see both spiritual and temporal forces influenced by the spiritual forces cannot separate you by the love of Christ. Nothing can. Well, my question to you is, and my exhortation to you, you must really consider the power of this eternal love. Nothing can rise against it once you're in it, once you're kept by him who dispensed it to you. Nothing can, nothing can successfully eliminate it. Nothing can stand in the face of it successfully. Think about it. Men's love can change. What men say that they will do can change. Men's acclaim and accolades, they can change. The world system, they may love you for a time when they deem you beneficial, and then they'll cast you out. That kind of love, temporal as it is, has no power in the face of men. God's when God claims you as his own before Christ. There's nothing that can claim the contrary ever. Not now, not in the past. You want to think height. You want to think depth. You want to think, well, there's things I can't see. Well, those things are settled. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of of Christ at all. Nothing. And I tell you, it's not only about this kind of defense mechanism that we're supposed to have where we think, well, wow, nothing can separate us. No, more than that, in Christ, we conquer them all. We conquer them all. Come what may. I'm not talking about this pride of life that we have in the face or this, we're not counting the cost of things that may come and inviting persecution as a badge of honor and somehow thinking, you know, we light up a city or a Twitter post or a Facebook post or whatever is somehow going to shield us. That's not it. It is that we conquer. We conquer, we conquer, and yet in our conquest by virtue of our eternal salvation in him. That's our plea. That's the evidence. That's the evidence that we win. So I come to you this morning to end on this note, that you win because you are a conquer in Christ, and you're a conqueror in Christ because of what he has finished on the cross for his elect. No charges can ever stick against you, no matter what's said. Let's pray.